Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You have to learn everything. You're your own mechanic, electrician, doctor, navigator, weather router. You got to fix things. And you've got to sail the boat as fast as you can, go in the right direction, and you've got to eat, sleep, and feed yourself. But I haven't got to the point where it's become so easy I get bored, because you've generally always got something to do. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. Today's feature is with Dee Kafari. Dee is perhaps best known for being the first woman to sail solo around the world, She's actually sailed around the world six times now in various different guises. As well as that, she's an environmentalist and she's an advocate for getting young people involved, um, not just in sailing, but in the outdoors and adventures. We really enjoyed going down to uh, record this with Dee earlier in October, and there's not much more for me to say. Dee said it all. Before we kick off, I just want to mention again that uh, we now are on Patreon, and you can head over there, check out what it is we have to offer in addition to the regular features and support us if you can. Okay, over to Dee. It would be good to start with you just telling me who you are and what you do as you see it. Yeah, Dee Kafari, Chris and Denise, not a lot of people know that. Um, Grew up in Hertfordshire, landlocked Hertfordshire, Went to ballet, dance lessons, uh, grew up playing sports and was one of those people that was excited about what I saw. I'd see something on TV and I'd be like, oh, I want to do that. You know, whether it was putting out fires, I wanted to be a firefighter, seeing people fly jets, I wanted to fly jets, you know, anything that looked exciting, I was excited about myself. And I had the fantasy evolved and it was I could sail in the summer and ski in the winter And wouldn't that be a great lifestyle? And fitness was a big thing for me. I was really keen on sport. And the balance of dancing and sport kind of changed a little bit. And I I kind of wasn't really that into school. I was good, but I wasn't like really loving it. So I would choose any option I could to not be there. And I realised then that everybody at the end of school was kind of going to university. And I was thinking, oh, and half of me was thinking in my dance environment that I was spending a lot of time in, people were auditioning for dance school. And my dad had that moment of clarity with me where he said, well, your dance career would be finite. And then what would you do after that? Um, And I was like, oh, that's quite sensible. And he said, well, go get your education and then you've got options. And also I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I um, I fulfilled that role of going to university, but I found the degree that would interest me the most. So I picked a degree that was 60% practical, 40% theory, um, sports science degree at Leeds Carnegie and loved it. I literally got to do everything. 
Um, and it was quite a broad base to start with and then we filtered it down. And it's funny because back then the first year covered philosophy, psychology, sociology, physiology and biomechanics. But I'm quite a natural black and white character. I don't have many shades of grey. And so for me, the philosophy, the sociology, the psychology was just too woolly. I couldn't deal with it at all. And I, you know, I, physiology and biomechanics was fact driven. So I liked that. And that was my major. And I kick myself now because everything I do evolves around people and psychology. And I just think, oh, I so did the wrong thing. So it was just one of those things where hindsight's a great thing. But yeah, I laugh at the way I drove myself at that time. Sports science degree, it was like, what do you do with that at the end of that? So I, in my head, I wanted to do a master's. I kind of enjoyed that study and that process, but um, financially I couldn't do it. And at the time, a PGCE was, you know, a viable option because it was funded. And I kind of fell into teaching almost accidentally. Absolutely loved it. It was like the right job too soon. And I loved and obviously the naughty kids in school, when you're a PE teacher, I did PE and mathematics as my second subject. So when you get the naughty kids, they're normally your best kids in a PE lesson. So, you know, you have these problem children that are just shining for you. And I, you know, I've got a lot out of that 13 paid weeks holiday a year. Not that teachers refer to it like that, but my memory is quite nice. But it was the right job too soon and I wanted adventure. And I moved around from state school, grammar school, and I went to an international college. And my father was very ill and passed away. And one of the last conversations I had with him was um, about, you know, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And he said, well, you're still just talking about it. So you're going to talk about it or are you going to go and do it? Because pretty soon you'll be too old. And I was 25 at the time. And I was like, oh, God. And I think that must have planted a seed. And then literally a year later... Uh, another figure from the school I was working at, he passed away too, and he was quite influential in my decision-making and career. And I just suddenly thought, you know, life is too short. So that probably was the catalyst for me to look at other options. And I went on a holiday. I kind of invested in myself and went on, like, the biggest holiday I'd ever gone on. And it was a diving and sailing holiday, um, East Africa, um, from Kalifi in Kenya. And we went to Pember Island and did lots of, would sell to another location, do a dive, and it was lovely. And the people on board, one of the dive master had literally just qualified from UKSA on the Isle of Wight and was telling me about this. And so when I came back, I kind of started to investigate it and then had that difficult conversation with my mum of, I'm going to retrain and try a new career. <laughs> so my mother, who thought that she'd just cracked it with, I've set you up for life, you've got a sensible job, and you're all kind of stress-free... Um, I convinced her that leaving teaching was a really good idea. The nice thing is I had that safety net of, I can always go back to it. So I kind of gave her the sensible side of life. And luckily, since that career change in 2000, I haven't had to go back. I visit and I go to schools and I get the children wildly excited and leave them in the hands of their teachers. Um, and I enjoy that because I think as a child, there's so much pressure and to know what you want to do, make the right decision you know, options, subjects, choices. And it's unfair because, you know, nobody knows what they want to do age 16. For, and careers are different these days. Before everyone had a career and it went on for 20 years, 30 years of their life, people didn't change jobs. But now the workplace is so transient. So people take skills and they take them into all different walks of life. So my takeaway for 
going into school age children is like life's about opportunities and your big decision is choosing when to take them and when not to and I was like you don't have to have the answers now don't stress just do what you enjoy and uh and things will evolve um so yeah I have to have that lesson to myself every now and again when I hit that what am I going to do um but yeah I changed careers I worked through the ranks but I was a charter skipper, so teaching people how to sail, taking them out for a nice jolly, serving drinks, teaching them how to sail, pull bits of string, bring them back at the end of the day. Then I started to do a bit more racing and did some transatlantic stuff, Caribbean regattas. And uh, I then saw the opportunity to be a skipper in a round-the-world race. And I had no idea that all these opportunities were out there when I first started sailing. Um, It kind of opened a door to a whole new world. And then I pretty much packed in six laps of the planet in 15 years. So I've been, I pretty much have crammed it all in. But it's funny now where I am has kind of brought together all aspects of my life into one area. Um, And I think now that from being a school teacher, giving opportunity to young people and pathways for people to go and realise their potential is quite key to me. And then... Obviously, as a female, I picked a very very male-dominated arena to progress in. So I I fought really hard to have that female opportunity. So enabling a pathway for women and getting an equal representation there is still an ongoing battle. And then equally, I have the ocean as my playground and my office. So environmentally, I'm very aware. And I realised I have a platform to be quite powerful in a voice in that arena. And so my last Round the World project literally brought all those aspects together and has put me in a place now where I think it not only sees me as a sailor but actually as an ocean advocate as a spokesperson and has kind of opened a few more doors to the variety that I seem to be living now I've done that thing where you ask one question I've just talked at you for ages no that is exactly (laughs) it's that's a very very good answer to a, a basic question um and that you know that response opens up so many chapter headings essentially most of which I hope we'll have time to come back to. But I think the best place to sort of start with the chapters after the intro is why sailing? You know, you could have picked mountaineering, you could have picked kayaking, you could have picked cycling, you could have gone back to dance, for example. Why, what was it about sailing that drew you in? I think sailing as a sport has so many disciplines and actually it's really comparable with mountaineering. You know, we're out in the elements we're challenging ourselves against mother nature the uncontrollable factors and I saw sport as a multidisciplined approach and went into water sports initially where you do windsurfing and kayaking and dinghy sailing but kind of thought actually the longevity career-wise yachting and offshore sailing kind of has a bit of a longer life I think coming in after five years of teaching I was slightly older than some of the other people training for it and I was thinking yeah, I haven't really got the Baywatch days in me where I run along the beach in my swimsuit and teach people to windsurf. Uh, and actually, I didn't realise that it, it was possible for somebody to become a sailor and then actually have that opportunity to sail around the world. You know, I kind of looked at those people as, well, that's what other people do. So to realise that it was attainable, it was like, well, why shouldn't it be me? Why not? And I think that's the kind of attitude I have. And I've needed it you have to be pretty resilient and um, stubborn to a certain extent one to sail around the world on your own but two to put yourself 
at the pinnacle of a sport that's so male dominated. So my first round the world, I was the only female skipper. My second round the world, I was the first woman to do it and four guys had done it. My third round the world, I was the only female team yet again. Um, the fifth round the world was an all female team. That was the first time that had been in that race for 12 years. And then most recently, the last one, I was the only female skipper again. And you, you have that, everyone thinks, oh, you know, well, you're amazing. That's really cool. But you have that imposter syndrome where you, you know, I used to have to have a conversation with myself every day that we had the skippers briefing and the press conference, because I'd walk into a room that was full of guys, the other seven male skippers, all the race management. And you just think, well, what have I got to contribute? They're not going to listen to me anyway. And there's... And they, the guys, in fairness, have no awareness of the atmosphere they created. But I felt so outside and not welcome and uncomfortable. And I was having to have this conversation with myself outside the door of, they haven't been around the world how you have. They haven't been around the world on their own. You fully deserve to be there. And, you know, you kind of step up, man up to it. And, you know, kind of put this front on and you go in and you do the polite conversation and just sit quietly in the corner. And again, press conference, you know, the same, you could tell what questions are going to be asked to which skippers. And, you know, three guys that would be asked about tactics and strategy. One generally didn't get asked any questions. Two, the next one got asked about sustainability and I got asked about women in sailing. And it was like, well, and I kind of took it for so long. And then as we worked our way around the world, towards the end, I kind of had lost my diplomacy, shall we say. And I just had to sit there and say, you're asking the wrong person. I said, I am a female. Maybe you should ask my six colleagues here, of which they all kind of like, oh God, I can't talk about the women question. And it's quite funny because I basically called them out on it because I'd, I'd been polite for so long and I was just like, we're missing the point here because it actually hasn't changed. The, the tokenism that's going there is a step in the right direction, don't get me wrong, but had it changed any of their opinions? Of course it hadn't. And then none of them would admit it. So I, yeah, I kind of had enough. Enough was enough. And I knew I was the voice for all the female sailors in the race to actually kind of speak up on it so yeah I decided to um have an opinion and I think then it's realized that gave me the confidence that I can have opinions whether it be in environmental and sustainability work or for women in sailing or just gen diversity and inclusion and you know even for youth pathways and opportunities and I think that's probably what's given me some of my roles that I have with different organizations now Okay. And it's it's very interesting because I've been talking both on camera or on microphone and off a lot about gender in the outdoors and in sport at the moment. And I feel like, and this is the first time I've had it as a 30-year-old male, white male, I feel like I've now got the confidence or maybe the permission to start talking about gender. Because I always felt like it was something that I wasn't allowed to talk about lots of different reasons exactly i'm those skippers you know sat there thinking well why are you gonna ask me i don't know i'm a white male with all of my privilege that i'm not actually aware of but need to be aware of and it is my responsibility and you've almost created a paradox for me now which is quite interesting because i don't want to be the person to ask you about gender now but because we're going there we sort of have to <laughs> um but why 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 is it the way it is what was it the skippers or i think the problem with our sport is it's steeped in tradition and um, history and we have a lot of the old guard still in place 
And we spend a lot of time as sailors trying to change this perception of our sport, that it's elitist, it's inaccessible, it's expensive. You know, basically hardly any of us actually own a boat. We all sail other people's boats. And actually there's a lot of sailing clubs where you can just rock up and say, is there an opportunity to sail? And you can. But people have no idea that that's possible. And then every time we get a public event where people have a little bit of a insight into the world of sailing, we exacerbate the problem unbelievably and all the afterguard come out in all their glory and their red trousers and their spaghetti on their shoulders and everything we are against they kind of emphasize and it's just like oh we've gone back to square one again and the america's cup is perfect for that it's the elite event you know it's the oldest sporting trophy in the world and it's millionaires playground and it's cutting edge technology it's innovative new technology that eventually filters down into the sport and it's hugely athletic athletes. You know, they're training the, at the pinnacle of their physical fitness and they're using this cutting-edge technology. But ultimately, it's by some a yacht club that's not very welcoming to the public and it's lots of money and it's very closed because it's so secretive and there's spies in all the different camps. And it kind of... It's that merging of traditional and histo- history with innovation and technology, you know... And the boats are flying. They're cool. You know, young people are looking at these boats sailing now going, oh, that's amazing. I want to do some of that. And we have to try and marry the two and make it possible. And that's the challenge for our sport at the moment. And that's kind of what I want to help address. Whether you're male or female, that opportunity needs... We need gender parity so that it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. You just want the same opportunity as an option. We're not asking for equality. We don't want balanced numbers we're asking for pathways and opportunities i think yeah absolutely and i'm gonna i'm trying for the first time to avoid the disclaimers so i'll just say it but it's very unlikely on average that women can run as fast as men there's a physiological barrier Mm. um what about sailing it's the same i mean physically we're never going to be as strong as the guys there are some phenomenal females out there that can push a lot of the guys aside but the elite level that we have you know we're not built the same we're just never going to do that but there's so many roles within a boat of sailing that you don't have to have the physical prowess all the time and that's what's interesting is actually a sailing team is about getting the right people in the right roles and playing to your strengths so actually you do have the grunt and you need those guys to have the grunt and give it the power but there's some with dexterity there's some with the brain power there's some with the steering which isn't a physical job you know there's so many other roles on the boat that there's no reason why a female can't do it and you know when you're single-handed around the world we're in the same boats in the same bit of ocean in the same weather doing exactly the same thing and you know we'd still do it yeah and especially when you look at you know is it always about competition i mean we've got sport at one end but at the other end there's adventure and sailing you know originated as a point of discovery and transport right yeah, and actually we have that range. So the Vendée Globe, for example, is single-handed. It's the elite single-handed non-stop round-the-world race. You leave from France and hopefully you come back to France, but not everyone does. And you have some end of the spectrum where they're racing all out and it's almost shit or bust, you know, that they're going for it. And if it fails, they're not going to spend time fixing it. Their, their race is over because they were going to win. And then there's the other end where, you know, they scrape through with the budget And they've got the opportunity and they're going to do the best they can. And they're not going to race as fast as these guys, but ultimately they're still going to sail around the world nonstop on their own. 
And actually the welcome you get in the Sabdalon, it doesn't matter whether you're first or last, there are thousands of people that come out to see you night and day that will cheer you in and you feel like, you know, everyone's a hero for actually succeeding. And it's phenomenal. We don't really have anything like that in the UK. Okay, but there is a community element to that. Yeah, but we're. I think it's that whole problem of the sport being considered elitist and accessible and expensive. We don't have that, you know, galvanise the nation behind something. I mean, Le Sabdelon has tens of thousands of people that see the boats off and then we'll see every single arrival in. It's phenomenal. And did you feel this when you were 26, 27? No, I was blissfully unaware of the whole... And also, I think... I came from teaching and I was experimenting in a new sport and I don't think I was really aware too much of what was around me. I was just learning my skills and upgrading myself and doing the best I could. I did kind of, you were aware that I was a minority, you know, I was hanging out with the boys, but actually I had to make sure I was good enough to do it so that there was no comeback. So I had a fantastic mentor when I first entered the environment. I was working for Mike Golding. He's a really successful British skipper. Very traditional in his attitude. And, you know, everyone was like, wow, Mike's employed a woman? You know, that's scaring some. And that was a big step change for him. And he originally told me at the beginning, oh, you're too emotional to go around the world. And I think back then he was probably right. And I have had to learn the psychology behind being less emotional and more level. Um... But he also said that you can blag whatever you like out on the water because nobody's going to know any different. He said, but the minute you come into the harbour and you park the boat or you leave the dock and you mess it up, everyone's going to know. So you need to be able to do that no matter what. And I was like, oh God, the panic. And so literally I would spend days just practising parking the boat in and out in all weathers, in all different directions, all different positions. I'd phone the marina, ask for the empty spaces and I'd put fenders everywhere and just practise just because I was aware that actually you can't you can't fake it when you come to that and it's somebody's pride and joy that I was responsible for. Do you think that's normal? No, I think that is making sure as a female in the industry I was as good as I possibly could be just so that there was no comeback. So the gender role was playing into it from the very beginning? Yeah, but I was probably less aware of it. I just thought, oh, that's something I should do. But yeah, I think that whole... You almost have to overcompensate to justify you, you being there. You know, most guys wouldn't. They're just. I think it's like, you know, you hear now when there's promotions in work. I think Hewlett-Packard did the study where they list the requirements and a guy will look at the list and go, well, I can do that one and that one, so yeah, I'll apply. You know, I'm sure I can work out the rest. A, le- a girl will look at it and look at all that and go, oh, I can't do that one, so no, I can't apply. And it's that we're not prepared to like fake it till we make it. We just have to be 100% sure before we go for anything. And that's what we need to almost change and just give people the self-confidence to well, push yourself and you know you can adapt and you can do it. But we lack a bit of that. I think that, that must come from both sides though. I mean, if, if you and I were both 27 years old on our boat for the first week pra- practicing our parking, I'm going to get off a lot more lightly if I oh for sure and if we were both on the same boat people would come and talk to you because they'd assume that you were the skipper of course they would and and that's we're very stereotyped and it's a slow process to change people's perception but I think if you look at women's sport in the last 18 months it's moved leaps and bounds in the right direction but it's how all of us can keep that momentum and learn from the other sports that have done such a good job of it 
and that, that's the hard thing some sports are slower to react than others and where do you think sailing sits compared to everything else we're way behind the curve I mean it's hard because we have so many disciplines and I think that's why we struggle because it's quite a complex environment to be in you know people even watch sailing and we all go in different directions and everyone says well how does that work so I, I get why people struggle but our Olympic sailing has been you know the requirement is 50 50 we have the same number of male athletes and the same number of female athletes so we've kind of kept up with everybody in that respect but outside of the Olympics we're really struggling and it still is a bit of a boys club and we're still trying to break into that and I understand it because people want to sail with the people they know the people they trust Um, but we're actually our own worst enemies I think time and time again I see it that because the opportunities have been so few we almost stab each other in the back to get that position and it's you know um it's massive competition um and whereas the guys it's a big network so somebody will get a job and they go oh i sailed with so and so he'd be great for that i'll bring him along and it's much more collective and they all move forwards together whereas we're like pick me pick me don't pick her and we need to maybe support each other a bit more but generally women aren't very good at supporting each other we're very quick to kind of push ourselves forwards and push everyone else back and I think that needs to change and that's a mentality and a, you know again you need inspirational role models you need coaches and mentors to help develop the pathways and how does 2019 D differ mentally from 27 year old D I am much more confident to have opinions before even last year I would be afraid to kind of put my head above the parapet and have an opinion but now I'm I'm willing to challenge you know if I think of the environmental stuff I see stuff and I think well why why are you not doing this and why and I'm prepared to challenge and keep going until there's an answer or they understand what I where I'm coming from I would never have done that before and I think it's that level of self-confidence um but sometimes it is still quite hard to go and put yourself in an environment that's new but I think in a way I get a little buzz from that that's what I've been doing for most of my life and um I guess that what that's what makes me like kind of keep going and pick myself up and prove to myself I can do it yeah and do you think there's a I want to come back to some of the stuff you just talked about in a minute, but do you think there's a social status kind of element to, not social status, sorry, um, a kind of class stereotype around sailing as well that is accurate or inaccurate? I think that as a kid, it seems very open and very easy and there's the same number of girls, same number of boys and actually it doesn't really matter what your background is because you all get chucked in a load of dinghies and everyone crashes into each other and it's all quite playful. But as soon as you move out of that, it is middle class, white, um, coastal areas and driven parents because then they then provide the opportunity for their child and drive them around the country. And it exacerbates the perception of the sport. And I think if you're involved in it, you realise that it's not actually like that. But there's a hell of a lot that supports that claim that it is very difficult and you know, there was an example I had, I had a, in my team in the last Volvo Ocean race, when I was skipper of Turn the Tide on Plastic, we had a black guy in our shore team. And, you know, somebody's like, oh, I'm looking for Mustafa Ingham. I was like, well, you'll find him. He's the black guy. And it's like, really, in this day and age, we're, that's the level we're at. And, you know, he's 
just providing opportunities for himself. Like he's just got done so well stepping up and getting out there, but he's really motivated, really sociable, super polite, has done all the hard graft and has networked really well. But it's like, God, that is shocking in this day and age that we don't have more diversity. And we talk about gender, but actually it's a big, a lot bigger than that. Oh, and across the outdoor sports spectrum, I mean, if you look at ethnicity, mm. it's not something I feel comfortable talking about in detail yet. I, you know, and that's through fear, I guess, of rep- you know being reprimanded. But there is a there is a guy whose Twitter handle and his Instagram handle is the Black Man on Skis, <laughs> and that kind of says everything you need to know about you know yeah. ethnicity in the ski industry. And I guess it's the same thing. Yeah, and I think that whole outdoor and, you know, where it's not quite comfortable, it's not traditional, it's it's very different environment. I mean, a lot of white people can't handle it. So when you put other ethnicities into that, they're going to struggle. I mean, I worked a lot with Amman Sale out in the Middle East, putting a sailing program together for their women. So, you know, not only am I in the Middle East where we've got Muslim people sailing, but I decided to take women sailing and give them the opportunity and race with the guys against the guys and everything. And it's the willingness is there from the next generation. You know, they're much more open-minded. The world has got much smaller with technology and communications. But you're fighting an uphill battle because there's so much tradition there and the older generations struggle with it. And so it's going to be a long process. We're talking, the girls I was working with, it's their, their children that are benefit. So you're really playing the long game. But, you know, I've been there and I've tried it and I've sailed around the Middle East and it's it's a hard, hard environment. Yeah, I'm sure. And and cultural sensitivities, understanding what makes them comfortable, what's okay, what's not okay. And, you know, thankfully I was with a group that were very willing to teach me as I went because I went out there not knowing. So I, you know, I said, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. Some of them aren't going to be correct. You're going to need to help me. And they were great for that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's fascinating that you've gone from you know, what is essentially a very late start to the sport to teaching and being an advocate for all sorts of elements of the sport after you know what is a relatively short period of time in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, your average sailor starts as a kid in dinghies and grows up always sailing. And yeah, I mean, my dad had a love of water and, you know, had his fairy tale that he would be kept on a yacht and my mum would just send him envelopes of money to keep him in the style he'd become accustomed to that's what he would always joke about um, my mum was scared stiff of water she wouldn't even have a shower because the water went over her head but she holiday we had a motorboat growing up and we used it like a caravan so every summer and easter holiday and weekends she would go down to the boat and she didn't like say um water she didn't swim and I was like, wow, that's like true love. She really did that for my dad. And she must have hated every minute of it. But, you know, we, we would go water skiing and she'd be there pulling the rope in and out. And, you know, she was massively supportive, but, you know, within her comfort zone. And the amount of trust she must have had in my dad was amazing. But, yeah, it's a very strange family environment to grow up in to go into what I've done. Yeah, it is. And to what extent do you think his... Um pastimes and opinions impacted the decision I know you've mentioned that it was part of the reason you left teaching but did it impact the the choice of sailing I think a little bit yeah he he was like big picture you know there was never an Olympic interest but there was you know big sailing boats or big oceans you know that kind of interest 
Um, but also his drive for perfection. You know, I grew up where I'd, oh, I got 98% in my test at school today. And he'd be like, well, what happened to the other 2%? And he'll be like, oh, God. And, or oh, imagine what you could do if you tried. And so I think I've got that in me even now. You know, it's, I need that challenge. Uh, we, we talked earlier where we're kind of driven by what gets us excited. You know, I have a personal trainer at the gym because I can't drive myself as hard as I need to. I need it to come from an external person. And I'm massively feedback focused. I have to have feedback. Um, and that's what drives me forward. So it's really interesting to understand what ticks your boxes so that you can get more out of things. And, that, you know, I wouldn't have known that age 27. So did you... Because I'm fascinated with you between by the link between sport and adventure. Because, you know, it's everything, well, not everything, but lots of what you're saying points towards this sporting kind of endeavor so it's elite level you know being the best you can be but you didn't pick running around running in circles around the track you picked something that's incredibly adventurous and dangerous especially when you look at the around the world solo stuff I mean how did you get to that point yeah I, I think the bit that I liked about the sailing environment was that no two days were ever the same so mother nature basically runs everything and you have no control so you know just when you think you've got it nailed she slaps you in the face and reminds you that you have no idea what's going on and weather as good as our forecasting is always has a curveball ready to throw at you when you least expect it and I think that constant evolving means that you're always learning so you never quite nail it you think you've got it but there's always opportunity to improve and I think that's why we keep going back you know why on earth would I want to go around the world six times there's only so many months you can live in the southern ocean and eat freeze-dried food but I seem to keep wanting to go back there and I genuinely love it and I I really realized that on the last round the world I did where I had um, a crew of under 30 sailors they're all under 30 having never been around the world before they were good sailors Olympians America's Cup sailors but they hadn't sailed around the world so this environment and I needed them to perform for 10 months not like an hour uh, and to keep it going and so it was a privilege to sail with them but to see them evolve in an environment that I genuinely loved it was awesome and I think that whole opportunity to constantly improve or better yourself keeps me going back and I think that's probably the thing you know I, I mundane or repetitive is a bit boring and you kind of where's the where's the spark and I guess that's what I struggle with yeah, and we'll come on to that because that 10 months sailing around the world sounds mundane and repetitive. I mean, we'll go there in a minute. I think it would be it would be really good because you're actually the first formal sort of official sailor we've had on the podcast. It might be quite good if you can to just explain, you know, what's the difference between an Olympian, an America's Cup sailor, around the world sailor, etc. Yeah, so the elite of our sport is considered the America's Cup. So it started in 1851. And we started it, it was called the One Guinea Cup, and there was a bit of a challenge put down. We lost it to America, and we never got it back. It's been in lots of different places. It's been Italy, it's been New Zealand, it's been in America, but we never got it back. So so Ben Ainsley is trying now to win it back, but who knows? And this is where it spends a lot of time in the courts. It's very political, and it's, um, you know, rich people's pocket money making this happen. And it's cutting-edge technology that slowly filters down into our sports. So the boats they've designed for 
2021, for example, that's going to take place in New Zealand, have never been seen before. These are boats that basically fly above the water with 11 people on board. And, you know, nobody actually knows quite how they're going to sail them. They've only just launched them and now they've got to learn how to sail them. So that's the America's Cup. Down from there, you've got the the ocean race, which is the pinnacle crewed around the world. So we go around the world and we do legs. So you stop in different places and that takes about 10 months because you activate in each port. You have a couple of weeks in each port and then you do the next leg. Then you have the Vendée Globe, which is the pinnacle solo around the world, nonstop. So you leave from France, come back from France, that's every four years. And then you have um, some of the amateur races, like the Clipper race, where there's a professional skipper, but the amateur people pay to be on board. And they go around the world and take 11 months to do it. And then you have the Olympic sailing. So that's more dinghies. And they sail for an hour and come back in. And, you know, they're trained and... Team GB is very good and what we're struggling with now is all the other countries have copied our model a bit so they're starting to catch up but generally you know we're going to have some good medalists and we normally get a good Olympic medal haul but those guys sell their race for like an hour so we, we range from an America's Cup race which is probably 30 minutes 45 minutes max to 10 months going around the world or 3 months going around the world if you're non-stop on your own um, and then to an hours in an Olympic campaign. And I think that's what confuses people because there's so much going on in the sport of sailing that they don't really understand how it all fits in. Oh, yeah, it's like saying, what is climbing? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, let's not even go there because it's, <laughs> it's not what this is about. It's the world I know and come from. But, it, yeah, it's the same thing. Um, so can you tell me about the first time you sailed around the world and how that happened? Yeah, I... Um... Originally, Sir Robin Knox Johnson contacted me to be a skipper for the Clipper Race. And I went and sailed the boat for a week with some crew and a skipper. And I was just like, I can't do it. I was like, I'm not ready for this yet. And he said, well, don't be one of those people that stands in the pub and says, oh, I could have, but I didn't. He said, "Um, you'll be really disappointed in that. And I was just like, I'm just not ready. I said, I can't manage the people and the boat and fix things and get myself around the world you know that's just too much at the moment and then literally the next year and I in that year I'd done some regattas in the UK I'd done some transatlantics I'd done Caribbean regattas and uh, the global challenge race which was Sir Chay Blythe's race um, which basically went around the world with amateurs the other direction so they're two similar setups but there was an opportunity to be a skipper in that and I applied And I actually missed the selection process because I had chopped the end of my finger off in a regatta in Antigua. So I wasn't able to get back in time and I wasn't fit to do anything. Um, So they were like, well, you're out of the process. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, oh, well, it's, you know, fate and you have to believe a certain level of that. Um, And then when I came back to the UK and I was going through recovery, they were saying, well, actually, how long until you can do something? And, and what it had is they had like 45 people apply, but there were no women. It's no surprise in the sailing industry. That's pretty much par for the course. So um, I had another couple of weeks to go before I could do anything. And I had to do the selection exercises on my own. So that was all kind of based on psychology. You had to organize your inbox. You had to send emails, like things that you wouldn't think were related to skippering a boat. Anyway, I got through that and I turned up for the final selection where 20 of us were being 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whittled down to 12 and two reserves. So of course I rock up and it's a week's kind of intensive course. And they said, um, the other guys were like, well, who the hell are you? Where have you come from? I was like, surprise. (laughs) And uh, I explained that I missed. They said, oh, so you've just been fast-tracked, have you? And, I thought, and you know, thankfully the organisation were like, she did the same stuff, just differently. And Anyway, we settled into this week. And that week was all about psychology. Learning about how to talk, how to communicate, learning who you are. And one of the exercises we had to do was have a 10-minute after-dinner speech ready. Because at times you're going to need to speak to sponsors or present at dinners and things like that. So whether it was um, like after the starter, after the main course or after the dessert, you were going to get a tap on the shoulder and you needed to be ready. So, of course, all of us were frantically writing notes of what would we talk about. And I started with like quite a sensible thing. And I was actually going to talk about the process of missing selection due to an injury and then coming into the environment. And that day we had um, a session on Know Your Audience. Now, in the room were 19 guys and me. And the selection staff, there were two girls and five guys. So I was like, right, this is pretty heavily male. And I was thinking, oh, I could do something quite interesting here. So at dinner, I got the tap on the shoulder of like, you'll be after dinner. So I was like, okay. So I just wrote on my serviette bra in the middle of the serviette. And I like elbowed the guy next to me. And I said, what do you reckon? He's like, well, you're the only one in this room that could. So I quickly did a mind map of how I would talk for 10 minutes on bras. And I literally stood up and openly said, well, they, you know, perform to the audience. So I think that quite a lot of you would be interested in the bra and how we wear it, what we wear it. And when we uplift, when we separate, when we do it at the front, when we do it at the back. And I literally went into this whole discussion on bras and literally they were wrapped. And I said, and there's that one other occasion, I said, um, that I haven't covered I said, uh, but that will have to wait till the Southern Nation. I said, and I'll tell you about it then. And literally left him hanging on that. And Sir Che Blythe came over and he was just like, well, you've got some balls, girl. And it was a case of, you know, I understood what the process was and it was, can you communicate? And, you know, I was like, what have I got to lose? And I think, you know, talking about bras probably nailed me the job. And actually in the Southern Nation, one of the other skippers, we did a call each day just to check everyone was okay. And they said, so you've got all our attention. We're halfway through the Southern Ocean. Are you going to tell us what this other bra is? I said, yeah, it's that time where we just don't wear one. (laughs) So they got their story at the end of it in the Southern Ocean. (laughs) Incredible. So what was the start line then for doing it? And how did it feel setting off? That was a, oh my God, what have I taken on? One, I'd never sailed around the world before. And here I was responsible for 17 people. But... um, I'd had, we'd done a round Britain, an island race, and I'd had a big, you know, done that and then came in and I had my tearful moment of, I can't do this. 
And actually the network we had with the other skippers, we were really close because it, it was a case of, it wasn't a them and us, but we were the best support for each other because we knew exactly what each other were going through. And as the race evolves, leg by leg, different people would have good legs and bad legs. And actually, you know, when that person needs you there on the dock to pick you up and whisk you away and make you feel better. And, um, you know, they're a close group of friends that we're still in touch with each other now. You know, and I'm a godmother to some of their kids. And, it, you know, it's really nice. And you share such an emotive experience. And it's 10 months, but it was that race that led to me going around the world without the 17 people on board three months later. And that was a conversation in Cape Town. So we'd survived the Southern Ocean because we're going the wrong way around the world. So long way first. Get to Cape Town. We have dinner with Sir Chay Blythe, the skippers. So there's 12 of us there. And he says, so all of you should be thinking about what next? You know, this is the stepping stone for your career. And all of us are thinking, God, we just want to get to the end. You know, if we survive this, we're doing well. And he, very traditional, you know, only a matter of time before a woman would follow in my footsteps. He was like, heaven forbid a woman will do it. But if a woman's going to do it, it could be you. And you kind of think, well, why wouldn't, why shouldn't it be me? Because obviously he'd, the reason the global challenge was set up was his impossible voyage that he did in 73, where 75, where he set off and sailed the wrong way around the world. And um, that leg then from Cape Town to Boston is 7,000 miles and it's horrendous. You know, you go through the doldrums and the crew cross their outgoing tracks. So they've actually circumnavigated geographically around the world. And they've all become experts. So they all start to question every decision you make. And it's quite a challenge. And it was at that point where I was like, yeah, it might be easier without them now. <laughs> and so when I got to Boston, I was like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. How do I make this happen? So he's like, well, think about the boat and what changes you want to make. And then you need to find the money to make it happen. And that was my first in understanding of what it means to put a campaign together and literally three months later I set off again on the same boat without 17 people. So before the inevitable question of and what happened next (laughs) um, can you explain logistically physically what you mean by the wrong way around the world? So against the prevailing winds and currents due to the earth's rotation the winds and currents generally flow in an east uh, a west to east direction so if you go down the Atlantic and you turn right, so you go under Cape Horn first, you're basically having all the Southern Ocean thrown into your face. The winds are against you, the currents are against you, so if you did nothing, you'd go backwards. So when you go the wrong way around the world, you basically go west about. And when I, the next race I did after my trip on my own was the Vendée Globe, which in contrast goes the right way around the world. And as we went down the Atlantic, the French skipper that eventually won the race, Michel Desjoyeux, he sent me an email and he's like, don't forget to turn left. I was just really excited. He knew how I was. I loved it. <laughs> but I obviously had a reputation. <laughs> so then, so backtracking a little bit. So you stood there, was it in Boston, you said? Mm. What What happened? What did you do? I Well, I just had the conversation with Che of like, so how do I go about this then? Because I didn't really know. And he said, well, I'll support you and use one of my boats because it's tried and tested I didn't really kind of think how would I sail this boat on my own without the 17 people I just went oh okay then Um, and then I got the sponsorship I got the phone call in September so we got back about July and I had done some conversations with different people and you know timing and luck really helps with that had the phone call in September to say yes and I literally left in November so the team that Challenge Business had you know were ready to go 
and the guys were so experienced they'd prepped boats for this similar type of thing before they knew exactly what we needed to do we added an autopilot we put a pedestal in to make life a little bit easier and we changed a couple of sails but pretty much the boat was how it was I stripped it out a little bit so it didn't feel quite so obvious that I was missing 17 people with me and off I went and the last bit of advice Che Blythe gave me was don't cry about it so of course I set off and the first thing I did was burst into tears and I was like oh god I can't let anyone know and I literally didn't talk to anyone for 10 days because I in my head I thought that you know being upset or phoning home would be a sign of weakness and then people would think I couldn't do it Um, And what it did was mean that they created loads of stories and like imagining the worst. And of course, I was having this emotional roller coaster that was chaotic, crying one minute, happy the next. Kind of doing okay and finding my feet. And he was like, you've got 27,000 miles to learn how to do it. I was like, oh, okay then. And, And you do learn how to do it. But not having any support or idea of what I was really letting myself in for, you know, it was quite an emotional journey to go on. So if you're solo and you're, you know, you're doing your first 10 days and you've got 27,000 miles to go, why does it matter to you what people are thinking back home? I think the big thing for me was everyone's willing to doubt what you set out to do. You know, there were loads of people telling the sponsor, telling the organiser, like the people that put the boat together. By the time I got to um, the Falklands, you know, you can't let her go in the Southern Asia and she can't do this. You know, this is just stupid you know she's going to die you can't do it and I had problems with my autopilot and um and it's that that point of people had invested time effort energy money blood sweat and tears to get me to that start line I was like I'm not going to let them down and and I realized then that I had that element of tenacity and sheer bloody mindedness that was suitable for a solo sailor and actually there was no way I wasn't going to do it so I just needed to get in the Southern Ocean as quick as possible because then actually there's no other option but just keep going. I guess it's like I, I'm fascinated by the why, as is probably apparent. But there is a there's a huge part of the how that I guess I need to understand here because, I mean, what what are you doing during the day? You know, when do you sleep? When do you eat? What? How do you navigate? Yeah, so I, that was the learning curve of how learning how to do that as I went along, really. So the transition from the wrong way around the world to the Vendée Globe, for example, those two laps, was definitely the difference between adventure, an adventure trip and being a professional racer. And the difference that I put into those two was the psychology. So I went the wrong way around the world, had an emotional roller coaster, my emotions were all over the place. That took a lot of energy and you're not focusing on the things that you need to focus on. But I learned how to spend six months on my own. So actually, by the time I came to the Vendée Globe, I then worked with a sports psychologist. I learned how to manage myself. I then knew that I wasn't going to cry or have all these random emotions. I needed to eat or I needed to sleep. And I knew what my triggers were. And also, it was only going to be three months. So relative to what I'd just done, it was quite easy, really. The big thing for me was doing it at a speed I wasn't used to. You know, the boat accelerates in the Southern Ocean and surfs down big waves. And it's amazing, but I needed to get used to that. Um, so two completely different levels, but yeah, I, I had the wrong way around the world to kind of learn how to do it before I stepped into the professional environment to do it. And a lot of the French sailors that do the Vendée Globe 
start on the mini transat which is a very small boat and then they work up to the figaro so they kind of had this pathway that leads them onto the vendee globe and i didn't follow any of that but i had just spent six months on my own sailing around the world so i took those lessons into my solo trip and you have to learn everything you're your own mechanic electrician doctor navigator weather router you got to fix things and you've got to sail the boat as fast as you can go in the right direction and you've got to eat sleep and feed yourself yeah you know, and sleep yeah and drink you know so yeah you're generally quite busy and everyone says oh didn't you get bored but i haven't got to the point where it's become so easy i get bored because you're generally always got something to do and if you're not downloading weather making a decision which way to go navigating making the boat go fast fixing something doing your media writing your diary taking your pictures and your video then you should be eating drinking or sleeping uh, and sleep is 10 minutes 20 minutes a long sleep is an hour and a half sometimes you can join them together because you get up have a look around everything's good and you can go back to sleep but i was probably averaging 5 hours in a 24 hour period and you adapt your body adapts like within about 10 days and actually i found the hard bit was coming back to normal life where you have a daytime and a nighttime again i struggled with that that's fascinating i didn't think there was i didn't realize that was how it worked at all i really naively assumed that you just put the autopilot on and have a big red light that bleeps loudly when something went wrong and No, so everything is set to alarms. If the wind speed changes, if the wind direction changes, if there's a proximity alarm on your radar, so you you have a lot of electronics in support. Um and you at the end of the day it's the sleep becomes like rest because you've got this white noise in the background. It's a very noisy environment. And you get used to the noise so that if something changes, you know immediately, generally you recognize what it is, but you know you've got to get up and do something because basically it's your life in your hands. no one else is going to get up and do it for you and there are those moments where you think you've had a conversation with someone and well have they done it or have I got to do it and you're like oh, there's no one else here idiot but there is that kind of hallucinogenic thing going on when you've been at sea for a long time but yeah it's um you adapt i think somebody said it's like having children i don't have children i have a fur baby but um it's like having children as in before you're a parent you sleep through the night fine and then suddenly from the minute the baby's in the house you can hear snuffling and turning over and you react straight away as a parent because you're responsible for a life and that goes on till they're 27 and still at home and you hear them coming in at 2 o'clock in the morning you know and that's that innate ability to adapt but did you were you expecting the adaptability or no i mean i was blissfully ignorant i had no idea what was going on so i think that's why my wrong way around the world was so valuable to me because i learned everything maybe i learned it the hard way maybe you know some lessons were easy some were hard and i kind of fell into a rhythm that worked for me and that's kind of what i've been able to take across to the other around the worlds i i guess the recovery from those probably i'm quite a light sleeper now but yeah. i'm very good at spending 8 hours in my bed quite happily on a normal day <laughs> yeah so it's really important that when you go around the world you try and leave to be in the southern ocean in their summer so that you get the best of the weather. Um and it is daylight pretty much the whole time, but it's grey. It's like somebody described the southern ocean as like many shades of grey, and it is every single shade of grey you can possibly think of. 
and you don't realize you're in this monochrome life until you kind of get around the corner and things start opening up and you go up the Atlantic and you go oh wow there's colors again so it's quite interesting but you know there's a certain kind of cutoff in the southern ocean where actually the risk gets much higher because the ice increase and the storm increase and you don't really want to be hanging down there at the wrong time yeah do you see much wildlife amazing levels of wildlife and actually we always go around and kick ourselves that we're not better at identifying it and it's always that oh, i must do that for next time and then you have the same conversation two years time when you go back again but yes um birds like the albatross um they're you know they're just with you the whole time as soon as you get to that certain latitude you're like i hear hear the guys and you know they're there and you just think oh i'm in good company you do that whole kind of identifying with them so for a sailor an albatross is a spirit of someone that's been lost and so you have that oh that's so and so keeping an eye on me and i think that's kind of like a nice a nicety and dolphins all the time i mean you can almost get bored of dolphins but i don't think any sailor gets bored of seeing them for me there are everything's going to be okay they're a feel-good thing whales whales are always a risk because obviously the fast they're just below the surface so the faster you go the higher risk of any collisions are and generally we both end up pretty badly off if we bump into them um sharks soon sharks a lot of um, random wildlife washed up onto the boat in the waves. So whether it's Portuguese man of war, shrimps, flying fish. Oh my God, the tropics and flying fish. And they stink really bad. Oh my God, you can be there like days afterwards where you think you've got all the flying fish off the deck. And you'd be like, it really smells bad. I can smell it. I can smell it. And you empty the pockets. And it might be in the fold of a sail or something. And you're like, that's disgusting. <laughs> it's all the stuff you don't think about when you're yeah. packing to go yeah and even even seaweed you know the the sargasso sea and the volume of weed we have to get through and the problem we have with it catching on our foils on our rudders and our keels and slowing us down and stuff and, and i've had a few mishaps and, you know greenpeace would not be happy but there are collisions at sea and we always have them as unidentified floating objects but you know a shark doesn't have a backbone so if you bump into a shark it will wrap itself around the foil and uh, the worst thing you can do is keep going because obviously you then drown it through its gills and you know that's horrendous so as soon as you you can tell the boat speed stops straight away and you need to try and stop and back off and get them free but it's, it's a hazardous environment and you have to remember that you're in their environment and uh, and I think that's that's what makes it special you know the endless horizons the sunrises the sunsets nature what you see and no photo does it justice almost so the romance of it is true then? For sure. Oh, yeah. And and you get time to enjoy it as well. And even, you know, the fiercest of storms almost gets to a point where it becomes surreal because there's so much wind and it's blowing the top of the waves off that it's just this white, foamy mess and it, you just got to see it to believe it. And it, you can't take a video or a photo and you talk about it and everyone goes, yeah, right. And unless you've been there, you don't really know. And I think... That's why there's such a close connection with round-the-world sailors. If you've done the Volvo Ocean Race or if you've done the Vendée Globe, you're in a family that is there for life. And it's a, you know, an emotional understanding of what each other have gone through. So when you think back to that first, you know, the wrong way round um, trip, what are the overriding memories? What pops to... Well, it's funny because even now, every time we go upwind and the boat leans over and starts crashing through the waves, everyone looks at me and says, oh, you can drive then. This is your weather. 
And uh, it's quite funny because generally whatever boat I'm on is quite good upwind. <laughs> I don't know whether that's because I spend an awfully long time doing it. But that that relentless crashing, living at an angle and everything crashing into the waves. And I had that moment where instead of tacking in the Southern Ocean, so moving the sails from one side to the other, I actually turned away from the wind and jibed round um, because I just couldn't get the boat to tack. The waves were too big. Uh, so it's quite an unusual thing to do. But I bore away and the boat suddenly, even 42 tonnes of steel, accelerated and the boat went flat and it all went quiet. And I was like, oh, this is why everyone goes the other way around the world. And then that realisation that I was actually going the wrong way and it really wasn't helping me finish. So I needed to finish the turn and then go back to crashing upwind again. And I think it's that relentless monotony. It took me 88 days in the Southern Ocean. I mean, people go around the world in less than that. It's crazy. How long did you do it? 178 days to go the wrong way around the world. And 88 of those were spent in the Southern Ocean between Cape Horn and the Cape of Good Hope. And how different a person were you? Well, the the interesting thing was everyone was quite nervous when I came back. So the stopwatch was started at the Lizard Lighthouse in Cornwall. And the guy was there six months later and I rang him and said, can you stop it? And, uh, you know, I had a quite a welcome there and it was horrendous weather and they were all a bit nervous about getting on the boat because they didn't really know what state I was going to be in I just spent six months on my own and they were all quite relieved that I hadn't actually changed a bit but what I did have was verbal diarrhea because I didn't have anyone to talk to for six months so literally I spoke at them for 48 hours they took a watch system to listen to me and they told me afterwards they were like our ears were bleeding you just did not shut up and literally I must have talked them through every single day of my six months around the world oh and then I did this and look at this fix I did and then I did this and that's when I told you about that and they were like oh god send her away again so it was quite funny was that sort of the coming of age for you as a professional sailor or was it yeah that was the I've made a mark I've done something that not many I mean there's only five of us that have done it I'm still the only female I mean, there's a reason not many people choose to do that. It is quite tough. But, um, yeah, and I also ticked the box of, thank God I never have to do that again. Yeah. Especially now I've gone the right way around the world. I get it. (laughs) So how long after that did you go the right way? I finished in May 2006, and in November 2008 I went the um, right way. Under what circumstances was that? Was that solo or was that... Solo, yeah. So I did the two solo ones back to back. Why Why did you go and do that then? So the wrong way around was about opportunity. Exactly what I say to the kids now of life is about opportunity and you just need to ta- decide which ones to take. And Jay Blythe was right. He said that it's only a matter of time before a female sailor does it. Why shouldn't it be you? And so I, I did that. And then I think as a result of doing that, I was like, I really want to go the other way now. I know I can be out here for long periods of time on my own. I want to step up and I want to sail with the big boys because, you know, that was an adventure and this was then stepping up to the professional league. And um, I felt ready to do it. And actually, the morning we left, I didn't really have any intrepidation or anything. I was ready to go around the world. I'd sailed 15,000 miles on my boat already. I was really confident I could spend that time on my own. I was confident in the boat and the work that had been done to prepare it. And, you know, I was like, yeah, see you then. And off I went around the world. I had no idea. I mean, that year I left on the Vendée Globe, 2008, 30 boats started, only 11 of us finished. I had no idea that the war of attrition would be quite so harsh. 
And can you describe what that trip was like by comparison? Yeah, it was very similar to start with, you know, but the pressure's on as, and you have that whole, I've got to do a sale change. Well, they've probably already done the sale change, so I need to do it. There was no kind of, oh, I'll have a drink first or I'll do that in a minute. It was like, actually, no, I'm racing now. I need to remember that. And then I first turned the corner and went left and you enter the Southern Ocean and you just start accelerating and my eyes were on stalks. And I remember thinking, oh God, how do I slow down? And then realising that actually, no, I'm not meant to slow down. This is what the boat's designed to do. And actually you hang on for the ride and then you get used to it. It's amazing how quick you adapt and get used to it. And then it becomes normal. But the following race I did was 2010. And that was the Barcelona World Race. And I had a Spanish girl on board with me. We were double-handed. And I saw her reaction as we turned left at the bottom of the Atlantic. And her eyes were on stalks. And it was really interesting knowing what I'd been through the first time I went in the Southern Ocean and seeing her and I was able to say right you need to get the warmer layers now life's going to change it's going to be like this and she was just like whoa you know we're off and I was like yeah hang on for the ride and so what were you doing between trips then between the big sales so interestingly enough I had finished in May May 2006 sponsored by Aviva, the insurance company. And in the summer is Cow's Week in August. So I was the new, you know, heroine, a record-breaking sailor and invited different places. And it was Scandia Cow's Week. So I went down and did my media day in my Scandia jacket. And on BBC TV, I was seen by Aviva in a Scandia jacket. And they said, why is she wearing that? And they were like, well, she's just doing media. And I alluded to wanting to go the right way around the world. And that's actually what started the conversations again to go the right way. And that took that took probably six months of negotiations to get the contract and get that happening. And then it was all about preparation for the Vendée Globe. So I feel as if I'm in that cycle of look for money, have a campaign, it ends. Look for money, have a campaign, it ends. And the looking for money doesn't get any easier. It gets harder and harder and you know, the economic climate that we're in at the moment really doesn't help anything. But yeah. that's the nature of campaigns like this. I think that's one of the things that people often fail to think about with expeditions is that, you know, you've got you've got your sort of lower end things that people save up for to go to Alaska for two mm. weeks, etc. Or to go and maybe even to sell around the UK. I mean, I don't know what that costs, but I'm sure it's achievable if you stay, save the money. But you must spend half of your year planning sat spreadsheets, going to meetings, trying to fund trips. Yeah, and, and I spent a lot of money invested in that for a while. And I was like, I can't sustain that. You know, you spend money to try and find money and you have to draw a line under it at some point. And then you try and do sailing with other people. But I do a lot of speaking and I quite enjoy it. Having been a teacher, I'm used to an audience that didn't listen. So that's quite nice to have an audience that does listen and a very original story that's very adaptive to the business world and you never know who you're talking to so when you're doing that you have to have in the back of your mind you know this might excite somebody and there's always potential um and that you know I've always scheming something that would be exciting to do going forwards yeah and you don't have to tell me but I suppose now's as good a time as any to ask you what you're scheming yeah so the power of turn the tide on plastic doing the Volvo Ocean Race having a sporting platform to talk about a really big issue I mean obviously timing is everything but the momentum behind that was huge 
And we did some scientific research looking at the microplastic content every single day as we went around the world. So in some of the most remote areas. And scientists were grateful for the data. And once you have real research done, it can't be ignored. It's harder for governments, institutions, legislation to ignore it. So I think that's what's helped create this momentum and this tidal wave of creating an awareness for the environment. And I came back and somebody was talking about the climate crisis and and I was explaining why that's so complex for people to understand. So the plastic people got because every day they interact with plastic. So they kind of can see it, they get it and they can make an informed decision every day in their actions. So it's a bit easier. But when you say climate crisis and you show a picture of a polar bear that's really skinny, people go, oh, look at the polar bear, but they, they're never going to see a polar bear on a day-to-day basis. So they don't understand how their everyday actions has an impact on climate crisis. And the whole topic of climate is so involved and so vast that it's almost too complex and too difficult for people. And I was thinking, well, maybe we need a sporting platform again where you go and do something that's quite incredible, but you use that to do the science and the research and give the data to the scientists to add value but you communicate the issues and, well, if you do this every day, this is what's happening here. And they talk about the Arctic being the barometer for the climate's health, the planet's health, and the ice retraction. And um, it always fascinated me the way the Northwest Passage can't always be done. And then somebody said, oh, the Northeast Passage is open pretty much all the way. It's just the politics now because it's um, that conflict of who owns what with Russia and shipping lines looking at it oil people looking at it and that impact but actually there's every chance that you could do the northeast and the northwest in one season and that's only been done twice to my knowledge and um i think twice in one season and maybe even one of them they had to stop or they'd stopped quite a lot and did it now i don't know politically if it can be non-stop because i think you need to clear in and out of russia at different times heaven forbid we'd have upset that but the power of that if one if you can do it kind of literally shows the extent of ice retraction but two if I can't it's actually even better because you can go there's still hope but the you know scientists can't get to these difficult places because it's not easy and if you've got a platform that can do lots of stuff for them along the way it's invaluable and that seems to have a lot of hold on proving the argument quite a lot so I just thought that would be a really cool project so that's kind of the plan hopefully I could get that together for next summer and time's running out and I'm struggling to find sponsorship to make that happen and then longer term the next ocean race goes in 2021 and I'm not ready to hang up my sea boots yet and I hope I can I hope I can be involved in some form and I don't know what form that will be but yeah I still want to be on the water I love it do you still do you sail day to day? Um, as much as possible. So last weekend I was sailing and this weekend I'm sailing. Um, where there's an opportunity, I try to. Um, but I'm also aware I travel quite a lot. So actually when I'm home, it's about, you know, catching up with life and seeing friends and family and reminding the dog who his mum is and, and going to the gym and like looking after me. And it's just that balance of everything. But I feel pretty lucky to do a lot of travelling, a lot of sailing and, you know, you still always want what you can't have. But it's, you know, I have a lucky, a privileged life. Yeah. And what do you want life to be like? What's the plan? 
Um, I mean, I, I don't want for much personally. You know, I'm not big cars, big houses. I'm, you know, it's not who I am. But it's, um, you know, I, I'm aware now of the confidence I have and the opinions that I have through experience, which I think is better than just having an opinion. You know, I, I've kind of lived a lot of it, whether it's environmental and I've seen the pollution in the oceans. I know what microplastics are there because I've measured them. Or whether it's, you know, fighting that gender battle for the future of the sport. And so, you know, I'm, I enjoy working on projects that I can help make a difference to. Um, I really enjoy the, you know, and that translates into business. There's a lot of businesses that want to be more sustainable but it's too big a topic for them you know it's a big ask and they don't know where to start or even that empowerment of their female um, employees you know that battle of the, the top and how you get you know retained staff you know and that kind of thing and there's a lot of discussion on that so you know there's a lot of diverse things I can work in in that respect where I take my experience from a very different environment but put it in a place that actually can help make a difference and then in the meantime, I hope I keep sailing. Yeah. You're not planning on going back to teaching anytime soon? No. <laughs> cool. So I suppose a good place to end would be to ask you two questions. One would be um, what advice you would have for young people or, you know, maybe not young people on... You know, if they want to make a big change that involves doing something adventurous, advice for doing that in a way that feels manageable? Well, I think, you know, there's there's two ways of looking at it. You can do something really big where you're relying on someone else's sponsorship to make it happen. And that's a hard environment to be in. But there are so many micro adventures that you can have that are manageable. And the youth or the young people today have so much power. We've seen that. Um, with Greta um, Thornburg, the Swedish activist. I mean, that week where she spoke at the United Nations, she galvanised a whole world and a whole community of young people into action to make a difference. At the same time, they showed British politicians in the House of Commons screaming at each other like children across a playground, and it was just embarrassing, wasn't it? So I think, you know, let's empower the young people. They are the ones that are inheriting our mess. They're the ones not... Um, creatures of habit they're very open-minded and they are open to new ideas and making a difference and they're the ones challenging their parents so I think that's where our strength is empowering them is great and if they've got ideas they need to kind of form a little gang and make things happen and if anything be inspired by what they've seen other children do and there's a lot of kids that you hear about now that are well I saw that and realized I could do this and these are you know they're the future leaders of our of our world which is exciting so I think don't be off put by the scale of it everything is scalable and you can start small and it will build in a community if you do it right and I think it's that ability to communicate and enthuse people around you to come on board and support you yeah brilliant and what small changes can people make to limit the amount of ocean plastic that you find when you're out at sea well it's interesting because everyone's like we are, I don't live near the ocean, so it's not my, you know, my plastic doesn't count. And it's, you know, we're, we're beyond that stage now. We realise, we used to have this blame culture of it's someone else's, it's the cruise liners, it's America, it's China. And we had this great blame culture. But what we realise is it's all of us contributing to it and we all need to action. And 
people do that whole, well, what difference does my bottle make? I said 7 billion people in the planet. So, you know, the realize, realization that an individual change that a household makes does have a huge knock-on effect. And my annoyance at the moment is for the conscientious consumer, the choice is often more expensive. And that's what we've got to change so that it's not a more expensive option because people can't sustain that. The average person can't sustain that. You know, I I cringe because I want to buy squash to have and I won't buy it in a plastic bottle. So I buy the one in a glass bottle, but it's twice the price. And it's just like, that annoys me and it shouldn't be the case. How can six loose apples be more expensive than six in a packet of plastic? So we, you know, we're challenging the... Um, supply chain and the people marketing and supermarkets that are putting it out there so that the choice can be made by the consumer and it doesn't affect their pocket it shouldn't be a more expensive option and I think that's what we need to keep the pressure on so that people can make the right decision so I think in this current day-to-day people want to do the right thing um, but it's just difficult um, financially all the time but there are some really simple changes you know I think I would massively encourage everybody to go back to bars of soap. You can get some amazing soap these days full of flavours and oils and smells and lovely. And just don't buy shower gel in a plastic bottle. You know, that's a really simple change. You know, don't buy a plastic bottle of drink, but take a refill bottle because places have to fill it up for you. And if you are going to buy a drink, buy a can. You know, and if you just take one small step, like maybe each month try one thing, and then make that a habit and then the next month add something else to it it is amazing how quickly you change and it, it we're creatures of habit and habits take a while to change but it's worth it yeah it's all very doable i think that's the thing i think it's overwhelming if you think of the topic as the whole thing but if you think of well what can i do this week and you just try one thing and then suddenly you'll realize that you don't leave the house without your bottle anyway and it's become a habit and you're constantly looking for places where you can fill it up. And then you've ticked that box. And then you'll be like, oh, really? But I just want to go and grab a coffee. Am I really going to be that person that says, can you put it in this mug? But actually, yeah, why not? Because they're more than willing to do that now. And you get charged less. Quite often you do get a better value for it, yeah, in the long term. And actually, it's that feel good that actually helps you think, oh, I'm going to do something else now. And, you know, there's lots of options out there and there's some real bugbears that are really easy to get rid of and I think if you look in your house and you look in your bathroom or your kitchen they're the two big areas that are easy to make changes in you know just decide one action and try it for a month and see what happens yeah it's a very inspiring place to leave it I think I've also never interviewed anybody who's told me that they hope their next expedition fails but I think it's like that's where the power is you know there's a if it does fail, there's a really good reason for that and that's, you know, hopeful for the future. I've also never said, thank you for sitting down with me, I hope you fail too, but, <laughs> but I do. So long as I actually get it started yeah, 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 and then yeah, fail, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, thank you very much, it's been brilliant. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on Dee or to check out more of the podcast, head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk. As always... Go and check out Sidetrack magazine at sidetrack.com for more amazing tales of adventure and exploration. In addition, depending on when you're listening to this, it's the Kendall Mountain Festival at the end of November. Kendall's been running for years and years. In fact, it's their 25th anniversary next year. 
We've actually got a film playing at the festival this year, so if you do go along, be sure to check out Aziza. If you have any ideas for guests or want to send us feedback, then we'd love to hear from you at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.